welcome back to the Quantum Divide. This week, we're speaking to Nathan from the Unitary Fund. Unitary Fund is a unique open source organization in quantum, and they've got so much interesting stuff going on that we're going to try and get, get through it all, but also do a bit of a, a dive into some of the projects that are going on inside the Unitary Fund and and how you can get involved if this is something which uh, is pushing the buttons for you. Nathan, thank you very much for joining us today. I wanted to say before you started, actually, one of the first organizations I came across when I was researching what organizations, what what people are out there looking at quantum technology. Unitary Fund was one of the first things I came across, actually. And it's quite unique in that case as well. I'm so, so glad to have you here to talk about it. So let me hand over to you. Give us a bit of a view on your background, how you got into quantum, how you got in, ended up at the Unitary Fund. Thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Nathan Shama. I am a Chief Technology Officer at the Unitary Fund. My background is in physics. I'm a theoretical physicist. I started studying the foundations of quantum mechanics and information, quantum information processing, then moved on to the simulation of many body quantum systems in solid state devices for applications such as terahertz technology, but also more fundamental questions about correlated systems, quantum optics and phase transitions, quantum phase transitions in systems out of equilibrium. And when I was doing these studies, I started using a free and open source tool called Qtip, which if you are an early stage researcher in quantum, what now are called like quantum technologies, can really save you up a lot of time and give you also a lot of insight. And I ended up actually doing my postdoc in the group in Japan at Riken, which is a Japan National Lab, where the software was first developed and also harbored and nurtured for many years. So that's when actually one student who was interning at the time, Shana was Ahmed, I did this sort of a switch from using open source software to starting to think to contribute to the open source community. So we had developed an algorithm to simulate many body quantum systems in a noisy environment under very realistic conditions that usually if you don't take advantage of some symmetries are just unfeasible to simulate on, on non-quantum computers because with 20 qubits, when you add the noise, if you don't make approximation, you're really out of the game. And we really thought, oh, this could be this is a tool that can be used not only for super radiance, which we were studying, but for a bunch of other stuff. And um, Shana once taught me how to do open source software contributions. He was previously a student in Google Summer of Code, which is a great program by Google, helping open source projects. And then progressively, I basically became one of the coordinators and the helpers in the community of a, of a Q-tip project. And that's why when, when Will pinged uh, uh, me, checking if I was interested in, in joining the Unitary Fund, I was really elated because it's a non-profit foundation who, whose aim is really to make quantum technologies as open as possible so that they can benefit the most people. And one, one of the focuses is really on open source software. 
because what we see it is that open source software enables, to some extent, to do research at scale. Research is something that inherently is uh, is done in um, in a custom way. It's almost like craft work. You call, you learn from a master and from a mentor. But open source tools really allow to accelerate discovery and avoid reinventing the wheel. So for this reason, Unitary Fund is a unique entity in the quantum space because it promotes an open community, which also means promoting open source tools. And some things we do by enabling others to achieve their goals with grants, mentorship, maybe we can speak a bit about that later. But some things we're uniquely positioned to, to tackle long-term projects uh, with a, from a position that is different from standard academia or corporate or startup players, which have, have other drive and they should have other focus, of course. Yeah, well, listen, let's, let's go to the unitary fund now. I know the three tenets are micro-grant, research, and community. Give us a quick overview of those and how they interlink and perhaps how they support the community as a whole. Yes. The first thing that we do, as you mentioned, is giving these micro-grants. They are no-strings-attached grants for explorers in quantum technology, quantum science. They can be students, researchers, hobbyists who want to have some validation of a project of their own. Sometimes it's individual performers, sometimes it's a team of folks. And these are $4,000 grants, no strings attached, that are given. Usually it's projects that last about six months or less. We have a midpoint check-in and, and a group of volunteers that help not only assign the grants, but also give some mentorship throughout the projects. So far, we've given over 90 grants worldwide in over 26 countries. So that's the first thing that the Unitary Fund does. And then, as you already mentioned, there is also the Discord server around which many of our activities revolve. We have a series of community calls from open source projects, some that are developed mainly and maintained by Unitary Fund technical staff, some by other communities. And it's a place to discover more about what's happening in quantum software, but also quantum hardware. We have some programs that allow people to get more exposure to, to quantum and get, get started or start tinkering on open problems that are, can be addressed. So one of them is a, a special kind of hackathon called the Interhack which puts in touch maintainers of existing quantum projects, such as Qiskit or PyZX or many others. Last year, we had 30, over 30 projects participating. And we put them in contact with a community of hackers that want to help and have the opportunity to already focus on specific open issues that have been listed by maintainers of these projects. And Unitary Fund creates this platform so that you have a sort of like a bounty-based mechanism so that when an issue is closed by a given hacker, they can get a reward 
if it is accepted, the solution is accepted. And so it's, it's a way to get started in quantum. We also do other, other things that are such as the open source survey in quantum. It's inspired by the stack overflow uh, developer survey and provides quite unique information from an independent source on the state of quantum software, serving especially those developers who develop quantum software and use quantum software today. And finally, there's a research that we perform. It's a special kind of research that we do. We do all we do in, in the open, developing open source projects that then can enable others to advance, the same mechanism I was mentioning earlier. So we have currently, I would say, two main projects and three or four lines of interest from research side. So the two projects are one on benchmarking, which is called Metric, which you can find at metric with a Q.info, uh, which is a platform, a web platform to really get to know what is the state of the art of quantum computing benchmarks. And everyone can submit their own or, or result that in the literature, they can tie a data point to an archive paper. And it's, uh, it's a framework that it's inspired from other projects, successful projects in fields such as AI with uh, papers in code. So happy to speak more about metric. But to get to your final points of the research side, we're also active in error mitigation. So error mitigation is a set of techniques which allow to improve results of quantum programs that run on current noise intermediate scale quantum computers. And we've developed MITIC, again, MITIC Q with a Q, with final Q, which is a Python toolkit to perform error mitigation on multiple front-end and providers and basically any backend as a hardware or simulated backend. So these are the two main projects we have. But as I was mentioning, we also have some other focus on simulation of quantum computers with, by classical means and also on application-oriented solutions for using quantum quantum simulators and quantum computers. Yeah, it's a broad scope of activities. It's very interesting and there's a lot of very important topics covered, especially for bringing community out and helping people get into quantum, especially the rate at which quantum is advancing is the rate of which the community advancing at the same. So the Unitary Fund is helping to keep the, work, the workforce alive and supplied. But I want to ask a little bit more about technical aspect of error mitigation. It's bit of a, you know, interest of mine to know error mitigation is a classical technique that does post-processing quantum computing, but I thought, is there something else you can do maybe to the algorithm before you execute it? Is error mitigation just a classical part? Or is there more to it that I'm, that I might not know about? Oh yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks, Steven. So yes, that you mentioned is one kind of of error mitigation, and it's probably like one that was, or it's a set of, of, of techniques that was applied extensively in the past, which is this one of post-processing. As you mentioned, there's more to it. So it's not completely classical. There is a post-processing part, which is classical, but you can really get more 
out of uh, out of the correction you can you're able to make if you do a sort of quantum sampling at the time of compilation. So instead of having one quantum program that you run and you get a noisy result, which is like the current problem of quantum computers, what you can do is that, and this depends on the technique, but generally speaking, the protocols are divided in two phases. The first phase, you take your quantum program and depending on the technique that you're applying and the parameters, that quantum program is duplicated in, the, in in multiple quantum programs, which are all different based on compilation rules that are given by the technique. They can be informed by noise models or tomography, and then they're run on the quantum computer. Then you're left with a distribution, a statistical distribution of noisy results, but they're all noisy in different ways. And this difference allows you to learn more about how noise as an impact with respect to uh, on, on errors and how you can uh, correct hope, hope to correct them at least partially and some regimes. And that's why the, the, the second part, it's fully classical and you can actually borrow a lot of powerful schemes from statistics, machine learning to do the extrapolation to a better value and result. Okay. That's. I didn't know that it was that, that as deep as that. It's very interesting. And there's a paper on um, MIDIC and these features are implemented in MIDIC as well, right? Yes, exactly. So we have a white paper for MIDIC. It's published in the Quantum Journal, which uh, itself is an open source project. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the code is open source and it's really a community-driven journal. And yes, a MIDIC is a, is a live project with now about 120 downloads from PyPy, the Python server. And, thousand uh, or? 120,000, yeah. Oh, okay. And nice. Yes, and about 65 uh, contributors. So what's great is really a minority of contributors come from UTIFAN, although we maintain the project and now we have a wider community of contributors. That's very interesting. I didn't know, I need to learn more about mitigation. <laughs> Especially, I think later we'll talk a little bit about networking, but error mitigation in a network setting. I don't know if any if some of these results could could extend, perhaps. I think that's very interesting. And we've been thinking a bit about it. And I think there's just a little bit of work in that, with that respect. One of the issues there is that generally when you have, you're sharing information over quantum networks, you really care about the quantum state and its coherences. And the information you get is lost if you don't have like, if you have like multiple shots, so to say. You really care about the state of that specific qubit or systems. I think it's more challenging, but can be applied. Yeah. I think one of the very important aspects, especially in networking, is the communication resources. Computing, you have computing resources, runtime of the algorithm, memory, how much memory the program takes, how many qubits that are allocated. But in communication setting, you have to minimize the number of messages between systems as well. This slows things down a lot. So you have to think about you know, optimal, another optimization to make on top of the compute, computing aspect. So it's a whole other axis of optimization to perform. It's, but I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's going to be important because if you think about how quantum computing might evolve, it's probably going to need multiple processors working together. And so this communication problem perhaps is going to emerge quite soon. The communication optimization problem, I should say. Yeah. 
So in MITIC, there's a calibration module that helps you find the right um, optimization or error correction approach, error mitigation approach. Is that right? Is that the pre or post? Yeah, you're correct. And it applies to both phases of error mitigation. So what the calibrator does, <coughs> it, it runs on a, on a set of standard benchmarks some strategies, so some quantum error mitigation techniques uh, with specific parameters. And given that we have some benchmarks that are provided by quantum programs, specific quantum programs, quantum circuits, such as randomized benchmarking quantum circuits or quantum volume quantum circuits, we know the, the exact result. And so based on how the error mitigation techniques are performing, on your target device, then you can pick the one that is performing best and apply it to your problem of interest, which is not like the benchmark with the known results, but it will be a new quantum circuit. So Steve, I think what you were saying there was a potential future state of something like this would also take into account the number of QPUs involved and the topology between them, the things like the entanglement success rate and stuff like that to optimize the resources that it's got. As soon as you have to start doing connection between devices, there's a whole other pile of uh, problems to deal with. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, Nathan, let's move on. That's brilliant. Yeah, I know you've mentioned Mythic and Metric. I was going to say, do you have any projects which don't have a queue in? But maybe, maybe you, could, you, could <laughs> you can answer that. But at the same time, I'd like to know what would you say are the top three contributions that the Unitary Fund has made to quantum computing as a whole, from the whole community? Is it, does it include those two, or are there some other ones you'd like to call out? I think it, it would include those two. Definitely, I would say creating a team of folks that are not in the proper academic setting, but can focus on research and technical problems in the ecosystem and hence also advance the state of science and research is a great value of its own. It's a bit of a different way of doing research that I think it's in between industrial research and as mentioned earlier, academic research. So to some extent, it's faster than academic research, but, and it also has different kind of, of drive and I would say metrics for success. I'll make an example. I think that right now in academia, there is a strong drive and focus for, you know, publication metrics. And at Twitter, I found sometimes we find that maybe the best way to share some finding is to write a piece of software that, for example, avoids uh, painful duplication of, of work uh, due to transpiration that now you need to make uh, due to the, the state of, of the current software stack where each framework has its own rule, but in the end you just want to run a quantum program on multiple devices. Or the best way to present results is in a blog post and you add a notebook, a Jupyter notebook, and people can very quickly take the data and then they can change the data, change the technique. And so you really have this much faster tinkering with, with ideas. So I think this is a really fantastic thing that we're doing. 
And to some extent, I hope that some of the work we're doing is also influencing what is happening at the policy level. We're seeing more focus for support of open source scientific software in quantum and beyond or frameworks that allow scientists and researchers to work on shared data sets, work on models that are open source and can be customized, but also studied and understood. And yeah, I hope that part of the work we're doing is, is making this impact also the policy level. And we're really doing quite a lot of things. I mentioned Unitary Hack as a really fantastic hackathon to get started. We have a microgrant program. One thing that I would say brings all this together is how many faults get into quantum thanks to the Unitary Fund. And uh, they maybe start, and we see this pattern continuously, like someone who drops in into our Discord calls that are weekly at several events on our Discord server, which is for those who don't know how Discord works, it's, it's a bit like Zoom, but you can, everyone can access the call or yeah, it's a bit like an open Teams, Microsoft Teams. And they start, they start by listening in, then maybe they take an issue that they can tackle and they solve it. Maybe later on, they maybe they participate in Unitary Hack and they contribute to several open source projects. And then they could move on with their own project that gets a microgrant. And then even later on, they, they could get a, a job in the industry if that's what they want to do. And so I think this is really rewarding. So one, one thing we try to, to keep track of is how many folks and which folks really got where, where things started in quantum text to Unitary Fund and then moved on and were part of this ecosystem. Yeah, it's been a real big game changer, I think, especially, I think I started following the Unitary Fund in 2018 when I started my PhD. That's when I first noticed. It was 2018, 2019. No, it must have been earlier than that. <laughs> Something like that, I don't remember. But it was early on, right, when it was the beginning stages. And I remember... Nothing like that. There's open source quantum software helping the community. It was really something different. So what I wanted to ask is, I've been looking at Unitary Fund from the outside for a long time, but from the inside, have you noticed a trend, a change, uh, changing in trends of how, what people are interested in, what projects have been applied for funding? For example, I think probably two or three years ago, a lot of the interest was in quantum machine learning, but now maybe it's in error mitigation, or maybe it's in quantum control. Have you noticed a change in interest and have you noticed, and how has Unitary Fund itself evolved with over the last couple of years? Yeah, so we, I see a couple of trends here. One of them is we mentioned these, these micro grants and many have been awarded to new projects or projects that were like that, not really just at the inception phase, maybe it was already like a GitHub repository, but maybe it was just a single contributor or main developer and someone else helping uh, in their close contacts. And the push was to make these projects, uh, and the challenge was to make these projects be used by a wider community. And we've seen this happen. And I can mention a couple of projects uh, I guess Tunet Sim is one of them that you designed, that you are maintaining, but there's many others. One that really became very successful is uh, um, 
PyZX, uh, which is a quantum circuit compiler based on Dagger Matic Semantics uh, ZX Calculus for some really exoteric uh, math abstractions, which are monoidal categories. But basically what it does, it's another way of compiling quantum circuits to lower the overhead of some uh, two cubic gates, for example. And it does this porting the, the, the quantum circuit to a given abstraction, which you can think of as basically as a graph or sort of a graph, and then playing on this new mathematical model to simplify this model and then switch it back to the quantum circuit. And this is really like we started tracking papers in impactful journals and impactful papers using PyZX to advance our the state of the art of quantum error correction. That's just one example. We've seen communities like QWorld start as a really small project uh, and then expanding into tens of, of countries with more than 100 workshops uh, and students getting degrees, also in collaboration with universities such as the University of Latvia. So these are some trends that we see, and I could also summarize it by saying that what we've started to steer toward to now that we have a, what we call a, this quantum jungle that is more as more projects and, and tools to avoid duplication. So not so you, you want to avoid this atomization of many projects doing similar things. So we don't need just another software development kit for writing quantum circuits. We have many options now, and actually you want to simplify and unify things. So sometimes we begin grants to faults, just developing specific projects that help other existing projects, or even just by opening a pull request. And I think this has been really fantastic. One example comes up with Q-tip. There was like a special method to solve a master equation based on, on Krylov subspaces. It's a way you can decompose matrices. And it's all like a quantum, quantum control problem. And basically this became, in the end, in Q-tip itself, it became an option in the very well-known ME-solve function, which is a master equation solver. That it's used by millions of, millions of downloads of Q-tip, but mostly people use this, uh, this function. So this one example, recently we've given grants, uh, for example, to one that was really great, is in the, in the uh, Qiskit ecosystem, there was a project that was given to Harshit Gupta in India for a timeline debugger for the Qiskit transpiler. Um, so you see, the level of detail is higher and higher, but the cool thing is that you basically create a tool that is like a, a command line, uh, a CLI uh, tool that helps you debug the transpilation of quantum circuits in Qiskit. So it's super useful and it doesn't need to be a product of its own that doesn't speak to other projects. So that's one trend. And another trend that we're seeing here, think, uh, looking at, it's more at the level of really like maybe content, as you were saying, like, oh, there's really like a wave of this and wave of that. It is like open hardware, something I'm really excited about. What does it mean to have open hardware in quantum computing and quantum technology? And examples of open hardware projects historically are Raspberry Pi, Arduino project, and also like 
blueprints or schemes that also like get close to hardware, but maybe they're just software, like a risk project and so on and so forth. So now you, you'd be surprised to see how many projects uh, um, exist in quantum that have to do with hardware and uh, having open hardware. And so we're seeing really this uptick in interest. So we recently gave two microgrants um, to two projects that have to do with open hardware. One is called uh, Open Quantum by Max Shurkawa Alto. And the grant was really to develop these CAD files. So it's like for software, but the CAD files are used to develop uh, electronic schematics, control firmware that then is used to develop atom-based quantum device that can be used for computing or for other experiments. And another recent project was a grant was given to Fred Jeski, sorry for the pronunciation, uh, to develop LabScript QC, which then evolved in another project called uh, Skewler with a Q. And that's something that we see a lot. It's projects evolving into other projects uh, or changing course. Um, and this is a, um, a SDK that allowed developers to provide cloud access to their code in a secure fashion. So it started at something really specific to cold atoms, and then it evolved into something more general. So this is something we see a lot. Yeah, this is such a wide variety. And then I guess what the natural extension would be like, what do you think is missing? What would be something that if someone applied tomorrow, you'd be like, yes, this is finally an answer to my call. <laughs> is, there, is there something there that you think would make a big impact right now, like or a piece of the pie that's missing? That's a good question. So one thing <clears throat> where definitely we don't have too much software or tools or projects, maybe even hardware beyond quantum computing. So if you go to quantum sensing, to quantum networks, it's limited to what you have at hand. And there's some great parts like unit sim and interlink queue uh, for which you were an awardee or mentor. Those are great, but I think there is room for more. Open hardware is something I mentioned that I think it still is a lot of room for expansion. I think in the quantum error correction field to develop algorithms and also the interface of quantum error correction, not yet in the full tolerance regime, but deploying these algorithms to current devices. I think where there's space to develop tools and software platforms. Recently, we, we've awarded, now it's already a couple of years ago, but we awarded a grant to a team of, of students and researchers uh, for lattice surgery-based quantum error correction compiler, which then led to, a, this was in Canada, and this led to a very cool project that you can look up at lattissurgery.com, which now has grown a lot in scope. But yeah, I think there is a lot to do in quantum error correction. Definitely we need benchmarks. So these are, I will, I will draw attention to metric. We can probably increase the APIs we have for metric. We have an API for an automated pipeline to run some standard algorithm to see how far we are from applications with quantum computers. So let's say that you want to solve the MaxCat problem with a variational quantum algorithm. So the, there are folks from the Quantum Economic Development Consortium, QDC, who have 
their set of quantum algorithms, and we created an automated pipeline to to run these benchmarks on the hardware backend and upload the results on the metric platform. So when we show up as data points in these charts, I think there's more need for these application-oriented benchmarks. Nathan, whilst you're there, you're talking about metric. I wonder if you could explain that in a bit more detail to a layman like myself. So I understand it's a benchmarking platform of some kind, but does that mean that it's connected to some quantum computers? Or is it to store records of benchmarking, in which case, how do you, how can you be sure that they are fair among the different systems? Yeah, so it is not directly connected to a hardware platform, but you have the possibility to connect it to its API. So what we did, for example, for the QDC uh, benchmarks was to add to the metric API the capability to integrate with this set of, uh, of, uh, of algorithms that then can be run on that specific machines. So metric is uh, uh, independent of, of the backend, but I think it would be a great to expand metric to be more fully integrated. Even maybe at the CI level, could use integration level with some backends. So there's partner, potential partners li- listening in. If you have a quantum computer that you would like to connect the metric, reach out. Talking about the results, this is a question we get a lot. Oh, how can we trust the result that we have there? Because right now, anyone who registers on metric can get submit a new result. And two things here. One, we have the comments on each page. So there is a level of control from the community itself. You can report a problem to the metric team. And we do moderate the results, so they are they're accepted and reviewed all. What we want to do, we want to make the mechanism even more trustworthy. And we actually have an open call for the Open Quantum Benchmark Committee ending February 23rd. So I don't know if this uh, podcast will be out by then, but we already got some amazing application for candidates. And we really want to create a lightweight committee that really helps in part with your contributions, but also helps with the taxonomy and the presentation side of things. There's a lot of data visualization choices that you need to make. And we're adding some of these options to, to the website. So one chart that I think is really insightful is a progress chart, which we also call what we need and what we have, which shows you on a logarithmic scale, vertically qubits and horizontally logical operation and shows uh, results or estimated calculations from the literature for various application of quantum computing algorithms. So they go from quantum dynamics to factoring to derivative pricing in, in finance to quantum chemistry. And that really helps, uh, uh, yeah, to some extent, demystify the field because you start to understand what's the pace of progress and what are the gaps with respect to specific use cases and applications in the real world. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm even having a look now and seeing all the different modalities that are on here and all the different tests which have been run. There's a huge amount of effort and input that's been put into this. 
Which can only be achieved through a community, really, I think, by the looks of it. Yeah. And we have every Friday, we have a metric jam session, as we do for many other projects that we host on our server. And everyone can tune in on Friday at 3.30 p.m. Central European time. I don't know if we've covered it already in, in my list. I wanted to talk about multi-QPU. And by that, I mean applications or algorithms which have been developed to run on multiple quantum computing either systems or processors. Now, okay, this is, at the moment, unless you work for IBM, it's probably a simulation thing for you. But are you seeing any of the contributions or the projects coming through Unitary Fund or in the ecosystem which are looking at that? We mentioned earlier on um, optimizing algorithms to run the right type of error correction, error mitigation, and the potential of building in the topology into those calculations as well. What are your thoughts on that, or is it too early? I've seen mostly research on, on, on this topic. So tangentially is also something that we, we investigated. There is a paper um, co-authored by Missy Wall, is the first author. It's with other folks at Unitary Fund, Andrea Mari, William Zhang, and myself, and a collaborator from... Uh, University of Chicago, Gokul Ravi, at the time of the University of Chicago, now University of Michigan. And in that work, we, we are porting error mitigation, a specific error mitigation technique to the quantum error correction framework. And the way you do it is, I need to give a bit of context to say what we did with due respect to these multiple cores to some extent. So what we did is, you have an overhead in the qubit number and the quality of these qubits in order to run quantum error correction codes. But you can use error mitigation to sort of like run approximated or smaller scale codes, quantum error correction codes, and then extrapolate what would be the result if it ran on a larger error correction code involving more qubits. And you can really think of a quantum processor as a 2D grid, which at each point you have a qubit. And the way these, that's a way you can also think of quantum codes such as the surface code, which has an extension of this quantum processing unit. What we did there is to some extent, it's not really like a dual core or multi-core QPU, but it's Introducing this idea of virtual cores, such that with the same quantum processing unit, that is, I don't know, say 20 by 20 matrix, what you can do, you can reuse qubits by running, let's say, multiple, multiple patches on your grid that refer to different, for example, surface code, surface code. So instead of involving 20 by 20 surface code, it is something like five by five. You have many of them that can run at the same time, and then you can post-process verbal results to then extrapolate what will happen for a 10 by 10, and so on and so forth. So this helps, especially with respect to the overhead that you have in the number of shots, because these quantum error mitigation techniques I mentioned, they allow you to use just a reduced number of qubits of the same number of qubits that you have at your disposal, but then they have an overhead in how many repetitions you need to run your code 
and these are also called shots. And so if, if you can do this, you can drastically reduce the number of codes, at least quadratically. Um, so that's one thing where I've seen, and we, we did internally this, this experiment or proposed really framework for quantum error correction, hybridized with quantum error mitigation. I cannot think of specifically other projects where can this multi-QPU approach. I know in the community there is these approaches. I think that especially some experimental platforms at Oxford, for example, are investigating how, so to say, is smaller scale QPUs uh, connected by quantum networks uh, can work experimentally. But it's not something I've seen much more closely. I think it really varies platform by platform, right? If you think about the Rydberg arrays that the neutral atom computers out there that are they're pushing their technology there by creating these zones of qubits that they're moving around inside the lattice to interact with each other. And that's almost like, um, I don't know, they're, they're, it's not like a separate core, but it's like you're, you're, you're retuning the positioning of all of the qubits in order to create some interactions at some point, which is very different to something like the fixed grids that you're talking about that you get in an iron trap or a superconducting platform. Yeah, and now you have even shuttling of ions on these on some devices so even thinking of shuttling that's right yeah thinking of, of a quantum processing unit and something static it's it's really not uh, you need to be more flexible than that and some system it is so to say hard coded and it's a monolithic piece in some uh, uh, in some material it could be a device with uh, superconducting elements or something that isn't CMOS compatible as for spin qubits. In some other cases, as we were mentioning, like atoms that are trapped by, by lasers, you have a flexibility. Every time you run a quantum program, you can potentially rearrange your grid in a way that is not even like a fixed 3D grid, but it can be like a different kind of mesh. So of course, at Pascal, we did the Turifan uh, 3D rendering, because really? we're not... <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty amazing with the level of control they get of the single atoms. And, and then, of course, there are challenges on how you can you can implement uh, two qubit gates, but those are like fantastic quantum simulators where you, you could, for example, when you were speaking, I was thinking about how when you have in some quantum materials, you have different zones that start to interact with each other. This zone are really like even in, in physical space, but you can look at them in some other like uh, complementary phase space. And you can really start with some dynamics uh, that are self-emerging and are also due to some of your driving, but then the kick-in of processes such as chaos or correlated mechanisms such as super radials. So yeah, I think it's really interesting to think of this stuff. And then, and then we're mentioning the, the IOs where one of the approaches to try to enable these long distance entangling with electromagnetic fields, but another approach is to always use these electromagnetic fields, but shuttle every time the two, the two ions that need to be entangled. And so you have also like the mm. mechanical degree of freedom that is controlled by, by some electrical degree of freedom. And so it's very fascinating yeah. to see the, the challenges that we have at the engineering level to develop these uh, quantum processing units. But a lot of creativity there. 
yeah, the innovation that's happening with all these different modalities is uh, the investment going in to that kind of innovation is really pretty amazing at the moment. Anyway, coming back to algorithms, coming back to stuff in software, I wanted to ask you this one, and maybe this is this is my na- naive um, noob question. But from what I understand, Shaw's algorithm, Grover's algorithm, they're the two algorithms, they're the flagship quantum algorithms that we know, if they can be run, have a an advantage over being trying to run them on a quant- on a classical system. The more I hear about these hardware improvements that we're talking about, and the more I hear about the ability to provide logical qubits with a much higher fidelity and less decoherence in the system, the more I think about the algorithms being the next point of the next thing where there's a gap, right? As the hardware gets better and better, ultimately the hardware is going to be, some of the hardware platforms are going to be ready to take on more advanced algorithms. What are you seeing inside the Unitary Fund around tackling this gap? Is there algorithm development happening in any of the projects? Um, I appreciate that quite a lot, a lot of the projects you've mentioned today, and thanks for that already, are things which de- developers, algorithm developers could use as part of their set system of tools and things. But yeah, is there an overlap there between the Unitary Fund and algorithm development? Yes. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if, how can I relate it to your, the first part of your comment about uh, for sure, and Grover, but I would say we also might like, we need more algorithms <laughs> and we need someone to come up. That's with. basically it. Yeah. There's a community, communities in the Unitary Fund. Is there a, an algorithm community inside it that's working on algorithms? Yeah. So we, I would say we are developing algorithms is quite challenging and you need your, yeah, I mean, after so many years, we have just a couple of, of frameworks things, right? You have BQA, you have many flavors, but they all relate to uh, QAOA or BQE, a lot of acronyms, but these are rational approaches. And then, as you said, where is Shore, where is is, uh, Grover, and there is a couple more. And actually, one thing that we did, we do support is actually not only benchmarking and a taxonomy of benchmark, but even a taxonomy of existing algorithms. There is a, a project that is every year lately in the Unitary Hack, which is called the Error Correction Zoo, which is developed by some researcher that is everywhere at Caltech and other places. Victor Albert is one of the maintainers. And there you see, really see like a taxonomy of these error correction codes. I've got to say, that is that does that come from the algorithm zoo, which I think was the original online zoo? And I was, earlier on, you also mentioned the quantum jungle of different things <laughs> in the unitary fund. Oh, I'm sensing a trend here, a theme of some kind. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a different project from that one, but it's it's really this one. It's really specific to all these different taxonomy of quantum error correction codes. So LDPC codes and other codes. So it's, it's it, it has now a community of its own. I can maybe reserve some material, we can share the link, but it's really fascinating. With respect to, with respect to what we're doing at Unitary Fund, I would say we actually proposed, you can call them algorithms, you can call them more like maybe techniques for error mitigation. We're not really like the algorithm in the sense of obtaining a calculation 
that has a, an application per se, but it's more like a technique that allows you to perform other calculations. You need to think about specific projects uh, where algorithms are at the center. That we've added some, but generally it's uh, some approaches to quantum compilation. A recent one is a pro- an approach to quantum compilation using genetic uh, genetic approaches, genetic algorithms that come from like you know the classical field. Or Casper is a recent project given to Michael Edman in Singapore on quantum representations of standard financial notation and classical assets. So yeah, whatever to think about it. Another thought maybe to you as well, Steve. Who are the types of individuals that develop these algorithms? Are they mathematicians or computer scientists, or is it normally a combination of the two? From my perspective, it's deep theory. It's You have to understand the linear algebra very deeply to invent a new quantum algorithm. And then it's about their mitigation, all the other techniques come after. But just knowing on pen and paper how to solve a problem with the quantum algorithm, I think... It's a conceptual yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You have to understand the mathematics very deeply, but to have, especially to have an advantage. You can do things potentially. You could just encode everything classically and then use classical manipulation. But if you want to extract the power of the quantum computer using the properties of quantum mechanics, it's, it takes quite some skill, I would say. I don't think I, I would even be capable of doing it. After all my education in academia and all this stuff, I still think it's inventing a new quantum algorithm from scratch to do something particularly special. Yeah. That's why most of these algorithms have names on them, Shor's algorithm, because <laughs> there's very unique. Uh, HHL is an acronym for the people who invented the algorithms. There's the, their names on them, Grover, <laughs> because they're so spectacular. Yeah, Shor's is interesting because it's got a whole bunch of different features in it like the quantum Fourier transform and some eigensolving and so on. And th- he didn't he actually come across it by accident. He was trying to solve some other problem and then ended up factoring primes as well. He was just, <laughs> I can't remember what the original thing was that he was solving, but um, I mean, for, so, for somebody of that level of br- brilliance, having to accidentally come across it through some other work. <laughs> it's not just the brilliance that's needed. It's also a bit of luck, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Like small mistakes. Yeah, I think it's finding applications for your work. It just you attend a conference or something. Someone says something, it triggers something in your head, and this stuff you're working on, you say I can apply this to this problem with a small modification. So Nathan, let's go back to the unitary fund. Thanks for all of that insight. What's on the roadmap for you? What's coming up? Maybe you know what's in store for 2024. Yeah, th- thanks for your question. We had some of the programs we run nearly. Of course, we want to execute also this year and grow in, in, in impact and activities. So definitely look out this spring for Unitary Hack 2024. And later on in the fall, we want to run even far-reaching, farther-reaching open source survey, quantum open source survey. Mythic is really at the level, I mean, it has now a sizable community of contributors and users. And what's next, I think it's two things. It's integrating more with noise characterization tools and capabilities to empower even better performing error mitigation techniques. And at the same, and to do this, also to do this, but I would say even more in general for to have a better flow from a user perspective is to integrate Mythic um, 
closer to the metal, so to say. So next to hardware. So again, it was like quantum hardware pro- provider listening to LinkedIn, uh, reach out. And we're actually performing uh, as part of a National Science Foundation grant for the growth of a meeting ecosystem. The team just marked about the first 50 interviews with the community in the, of users, but also researchers in the space. And we're getting like some great insights. So we really look forward to put to work these, these findings. On the partnership level, a couple of years ago, there weren't many nonprofit or collaborative initiatives. You had like academic research, then industrial research centers from maybe some big corporations that have been investing for long in quantum computing research. And then startups started to pop up. Now we're seeing like a more complex elaborate ecosystem, which I think it's beneficial for like transfer. So we're looking forward to work more and more with these sort of like local uh, environments. There's been some that have been really successful in development. One is in France, where recently we opened up a shop. So we have inaugurated last year with Fund France, and that's really like a thriving an ecosystem that is scaling up with some major startups, but a lot of research and new emerging startups and government involvement. So there's various actors, other nonprofits like Le Lap Quantique, La French Tech. So it's really important to have this sort of open ecosystems nowadays. The Netherlands is another environment where it's been the Quantum Delta Innovation Hub, so to say, that it's really helping startups and spin-offs from Delft and Amsterdam, um, you know, work with each other, understand what are like the, the strengths and how they can integrate some merging on our startups. And now there's a women in quantum development uh, nonprofit that emerged in that ecosystem. So we're looking forward to work with many of these. In, in, in the UK, there's a large, large government support, the cent- doctoral training centers, so we're looking forward to, to partner with Realities there, the University of Southampton, and other new doctoral training centers emerging there. In Italy, we're helping establish Quantum Italia, which is an initiative from one of our sponsors, Scientific Venture Capital. And we're really helping create an open ecosystem. So this is like a venture capital fund really focused on, on helping scientists bring their research out of the lab and start to think in more startup-oriented way. But we're, we're a bit unique because we provide fellowships to data scientists and scientists. They give awards to theses, they have open calls. So this, this environment and also there, this last year, in November 2023, we hosted our first in-person meeting, UnitaryCon, in Rome, thanks to their support. So... We look forward to helping them more, giving them their understanding that you also need to fund things that don't go directly to a startup. Yeah. You need an ecosystem of doers and developers. I did mention now UnitaryCon, uh, and this was our first in-person meeting. And it was just amazing. I mean, we got really um, fantastic reviews from the community of developers and micrograntee awards that joined. It was a sort of like closely knit atmosphere, about 40 people. 
But the level of interaction and finally meeting in person, that and that maintainer or developer, it was just fantastic together with some of our advisory board members, which I should really thank because they really helped Unitary Fund thrive and review the application of the micrograds. Uh, yes, you could see like, you know, uh, many of these uh, of these folks interact with each other. And that, that was just fantastic. There was uh, Rochisha Agarwal from, from India who started his quantum machine learning textbook, interacting with Nathan Killeran, who is a software city of, of Zanado startup, and Spencer Churchill, who wrote these quantum tales, uh, these new tales, uh, through which he's explaining in a very specific technical, I mean, it's very technical, but you know, it's, it's, it's a tale that you can read specific algorithms or, or settings in uh, the quantum world. And now has got a, is now working at, at, at IMQ, one of the prominent startups in the field. It's really an exciting environment. And next year, this year, we, we look forward to, to have again this event and grow it further. So I think these are the main things that are on my radar. The event, the face-to-face event sounds like a real milestone. And I'm already imagining something much bigger. Think five in five years' time. Think about the open source yeah, community exactly. or convening I mean, on a conference center somewhere. All the sponsorship and all the people involved could be fantastic. It's, I'm looking into my crystal ball. <laughs> and that's what I see, Nathan. Yeah, we just had this discussion with the board. Should we go into the direction of making it start to working right now to make it bigger and bigger? Should we just first nurture this community and keep it a bit close-knit? So yeah, there's different directions you can go. But yeah, of course, we call it unitary con because in the Python ecosystem, it is PyCon. You have different levels like PyData and... Euro sci-fi, but this idea of this conference, it's, it's, it's really something we'd like to see grow. And in this direction, definitely partner more and create bridges with, with existing nonprofits in the open source space, and as well as in the quantum space. The 5th of March is going to be the launch, official launch of the Open Quantum Institute, managed by CERN and hosted by the Jansda Institute in Geneva. We look forward to partner with them. There's also like some some big players in, in, in the open source space, such as the Linux Foundation is what it comes to mind. Numfocus, uh, I, I'm a mentor for Numfocus for the QT project and Google Summer Code. There is a center for open science. There was also awarded the National Science Foundation grant to grow their ecosystem. So I really look forward to further partnership and interactions at the time at which we really feel like Unitary Fund has established itself as some call them research-focused organizations. So it's a new kind of organization where you can do many things that usually could be thought of or done only in an in a academic environment. So we don't do just academic stuff, we also do more like pop fun stuff. But yeah, the research part is always at core. Very nice. Yeah, I did read about the Open Quantum Institute. That sounds like those guys are going to have a similar kind of vision and goal as you in terms of working towards open software, open architectures. 
Yeah. I was just passing saying it, but I should really emphasize it. A lot of what the Unitary Fund does, thanks to the community of contributors, the volunteers, the technical staff. And I also want to thank our members. So we have some core members and supporting members. You can find them on site at unitary.fund. Um, 23 members were like IBM Q, IBM Quantum, Scientifica, uh, Agnostic, AWS, Cisco, Dorax, Pascal, Candela, Covalent, Kyber. And we're about to announce our 2024 members. So I'm really excited. I really look forward to the growth of this cohort of members and supporters this year and the upcoming years. Yeah. Hey, at the heart of it is the people for sure. Um, and, and let's let's do that. You've called out some of the members there and some of the contributors, advisors, and so on. What about the actual people that are contributing to code? Are there any key people you want to call out? Any heroes of the community that you think you'd like to mention? And I'm sorry we've left it till the end, but let's get it in there anyway. I'm sure there are a few. And um, if you forget one or two, I'm sure they'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to it's very hard to single out some really here in the cover, Steven. He started as a, uh, as a RD of, uh, for his project and then moved on to be a mentor. And now, and this year we work also, he also at the head of uh, working at Cisco and helping bridge the partnership and the support from Cisco to, to the Unitary Fund. And actually we see, and he was also a mentor for, for the Interlink Q plugin of uh, QNET Sim, which was the original quantum network simulator where he built while at, uh, at TUM, right, at the uh, University of Munich. So it, it's hard to name them. I to, to single out one. I really think, uh, yeah, you can you can look at them up on the Udray.fund uh, website. I, maybe uh, they come to mind. Some of the latest additions include uh, uh, Amira Bass um, and uh, Sonica Yori. And yeah, they've really been fantastic in mentoring uh, and evaluating some of the microgrid application we've had. And I would really like to thank board members that I've not really had since the beginning. One of them is Travis Scholten, who was like involved with the user fund even before I joined, so before previous to 2020. So these are some folks that come to mind. And then again, really many of our team members uh, fund technical staff that are working full-time on, on these community projects. They started as contributors and volunteers. Uh, so there is a uh, Misty Wall who started as a Unitary Fund ambassador. First thing that she did with Unitary Fund. Or Dan Strano who developed uh, the QREX simulator, which is uh, a highly enhanced uh, GPU simulator for quantum computers that was beating the state of the art of simulators from Google and IBM at some point. And I don't know, like now you can see who's leading it, who's not on metric.info. Um, but he's now a full-time developer for, for, for retail and engineer for many other things we do. But yeah, no, no offense to those that you didn't cite because... No, I'm, no, it's great. Thank you for that. It's, I, I know it takes a village. I, your organization is the real epitome of that phrase. It takes a village because there's so many different people that are contributing. I know you've mentioned a few there and I'm sure it's only a small percentage overall. Thank you for that. 
let's wrap up. I just want to say thanks again for coming to talk to us, Nathan. It's always exciting to talk to you. I look forward to the next one. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out.